the Huntley Baptist Church podcast. We hope that this message can be an encouragement to you today. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist@extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com. Morning, everybody. <laughs> Good to see you all again. Oh, my lovely wife wrote, breathe, smile and pause at the top of my paper. I'm kind of forgetting which one I'm supposed to be at right now. I'll try and breathe. The rest of them can come and preach. Yeah, yeah, I should have wrote preach well on the front of it. Cool. Hey, as your guys are probably all well aware, we're making our way through Faith in Action series. It's been quite a series. Last week, we spoke about uh, some biblical characters, which is a good start. Jonah and Naomi specifically, characters that struggle with disappointment and discouragement, and in some cases, depression. We also investigated how we as believers should view and respond to disappointment, especially in light of the spiritual battles that we all face every day. Today, we get to talk about a most joyous disappointment indeed. It's actually the title of the sermon. It sounds like a Christmas song or something, but it's not. It's, it's something else entirely. But first, we're going to talk about the, the origins of this disappointment. So you see, this story of this most joyous disappointment actually began with another disappointment. So bear with me here. This other disappointment happened to be mankind's first disappointment. I'm sure you can all probably guess who I'm talking about. Old, old, old mates, Adam and Eve, way back in Genesis 3. Now, Adam and Eve had it made. They, uh, they lived in this beautiful garden. They had intimate fellowship with God, incredible food and animals and, and perfectly healthy bodies. God looked at it all and he said, it's good. He declared it good, actually. But it seems that God's good wasn't good enough for Adam and Eve because they got approached by a subtle serpent with promises of something greater. We can go to slide one, please. Daniel and Ivy. This is from Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Cool, I'm just going to read it out. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall surely not die. Ye shall not surely die. Sorry. For God doth know that in the day that ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. I used to think, um, why was a tree even there in the first place? <laughs> but because God's so good, he gave us free will, right? So, so we have a choice. Uh, his good or our own version of good. So this sneaky serpent, our adversary or the devil as he's also known, manages to convince Adam and Eve that despite all the great things that they've got going on, God is somehow holding out on them. And that by eating this fruit, not only will they not die, like God said they would, but they will gain knowledge and become like God themselves. 
So we all know it, it doesn't quite work out like that. Yes, they gained the knowledge of good and evil, but they also brought the curse of death upon themselves and the whole earth. Safe to say that this outcome probably fell way short of their expectation. Which brings me to a question. Does God get disappointed? Growing up, I didn't really know, I didn't really care, sorry, if God was disappointed in me or not. I was too preoccupied pursuing my own lusts of the flesh. And then once I came back to God, I really struggled with this concept that he demanded complete obedience uh, or else he'd be disappointed and like take his hand off me, so to speak, that I'd be like this King Saul or Esau cast aside for someone better, that I'd fall out of favor. Not a very nice place to operate from, very much like a faith roller coaster. It also made faith in action more of a chore than a heartfelt attempt to represent Jesus. Now, this did gradually begin to shift, but first, back to our question. Does God get disappointed? Now, we've got a few verses to look at here, ones that deal with God's knowledge of the future. So, starting with, if we could go to slide two, please, Daniel and Ivy. Psalm 139, verse 4. For there is not a word in my tongue, but lo, O Lord, thou knowest it all together. Okay. So, God knows what we're going to say even before we say it. But is that because he just knows us really well? Luke 12, 7 says that God knows how many hairs are on your head. Or maybe we're just really predictable. I pretty much know what Juliet's going to say before she even says it. And it normally requires some kind of apology on my part. <laughs> Not all the time, sometimes. <laughs> okay, what about the next verse? We can go to the next slide. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and the ancient and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Amen. I work for a company called Foster Construction, uh, and that company motto is we begin we begin with the end in mind. But I can tell you that no matter how carefully we plan a construction project, I'm currently working on one that's been six years in the planning, there is always surprises, pretty much every day. But this verse, God's talking about describing what's going to happen at the end, right at the beginning, and over huge spans of time. Now let us remind ourselves that disappointment is the sadness caused by failure or non-fulfillment of one's expectations or desires. So going back a step, does God feel sadness? The word says that he weeps uh, through the prophet Jeremiah for the crushing blows that his people Israel receive. Psalm 34, 18 promises that the Lord is nigh or close unto them that are of a broken heart. He relates. But here's the thing. God knows the end from the beginning because he has the power to carry out everything that he wants to accomplish. So technically, from my point of view, I don't think he can be disappointed because ultimately his desires, oh, I don't think he can be disappointed, not in circumstances or in us because ultimately his desires always come to pass. You see, even when Adam and Eve fell short and ate the forbidden fruit, God already had a plan in place for redemption. In 1 Peter 1.19 to 20, it says, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, 
who verily was foredained or predestined before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. So before the world was formed, Jesus Christ was destined to go to the cross for the sin of mankind. God already knew all the horrible, sinful things that we would ever do. And he still sent Jesus to be a sacrifice in our place. So speaking of Jesus, if anybody had a reason to be disappointed and discouraged, it was him. For a start, it says in John 7, 5 that his own brothers didn't even believe in him. Double down on that one, two verses later, Jesus says this to his brothers in John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. So the very people that Jesus came to save hate him, because his perfection highlights our imperfection. If we seek to follow Jesus and live by his example, to step out in faith or to act in faith, then we can expect the world to disapprove of us. Because our pursuit of righteousness highlights their worldly pursuit of flesh. Not that we can boast in any righteousness because it's only the light of the Holy Spirit shining within us that other people can see. After one of Jesus' first public sermons, in which he reads from the book of Isaiah, the crowd listening gets so enraged that they try and toss him off a cliff. But Jesus passes through the middle of them and escapes. John 6 describes another sermon in which Jesus talks about being the bread of life, the living water that came down from heaven. He's teaching them about who he truly is and what was the crowd's response. John 6, 60, many thereof of his disciples, so not just strangers, these were people who had committed to following him, when they had heard this said, this is a hard saying, who can hear it? And in John 6, verse 66, it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. You see, these disciples were happy to follow him when he was healing people and miraculously providing lunch. But as soon as he starts expressing to them who he truly is, they left him. And I'm sure a great number of us would be greatly disappointed and discouraged by this. But what was Jesus' response? It says in John 63 and 64, it is the spirit that quickeneth, or means to bring alive or to make alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. So Jesus knew why he was there. And it certainly wasn't to appeal to people's flesh. He was there to speak spiritual life into them. He was there to deliver God's words. Those who couldn't handle it, left. But what about the others? In John 6, 67 and 68, Then Jesus said unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. Sometimes I, I feel like the ones that just bail. <laughs> when it all gets a little bit hard to hear, which group do you feel like you most often represent? The ones who left because they didn't like the words that Jesus was speaking? Or the ones who stayed because they recognized the words as bringing spiritual life? Maybe you uh, can relate to Jesus in these passages. Maybe you've stepped out in faith recently and it didn't go as you expected. I was actually challenged this week 
to read my Bible in the smoker room area of our office. The first time the Lord put it on my heart, I thought about it, and then I straight chickened out. <laughs> I was like, no way. You see, our project manager often eats office and uh, often eats lunch in our smoker room office. And I have a lot of respect for him, actually. He's a very, very intelligent man, and he's very quick-witted. And he's not afraid to just speak his mind. And honestly, I was afraid that he'd make fun of me. And I just wouldn't know what to say, and I'd go red, and it would be horrible. I was disappointed in myself for not going through with it. But disappointment can be a great motivational tool if you don't let it fester into disappointment. I was determined the next time I feel prompted by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to act. And that day came quick. (laughs) It was basically the next day. I think it was two days that I can't quite remember. So I collected my Bible and my notebook and I sat down in the smoker room and I started taking notes for this very sermon or message. And the first person to approach me was our project director, Tim. And he began asking me a question. He walked up to me, began asking me a question, and he looked, stopped mid-sentence and just stared at the Bible. <laughs> and I was kind of looking at him, and he's looking at the Bible, and it felt like minutes, honestly. <laughs> Passed, and he just hurriedly finished his question and then left very quickly. And I, after that, I was like, cool, that's it, eh, God? That's what you wanted me to experience? I... I should pack up my stuff and go now because I do not want another encounter like that. But to be honest, just as I was umming and ahhing and just as I started to close my, uh, my uh, stuff up, our project manager Ben walked through the door with his classic lunch, which is a Subway salad, double meat. And my heart skipped a beat. I'm just pondering all these ways that he could potentially embarrass me uh, once he saw me reading a Bible. And, and Ben sat down, looked over at me and was like, what are you working on there, Mark? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm studying for a talk at church. I said to him, unfortunately, um, I've left it to the last minute, so <laughs> I've got to catch up here at work. And he laughed and then uh, began to ask me about it. Uh, I said, is it on a Sunday? It makes me sound like he's somebody who might have been to church a few times because he asked very specific things about the service, when and where. And yeah, after that, after I replied and said, this is what it is, he just nodded and went back to eating his lunch wasn't awkward, wasn't uncomfortable, it was actually quite nice. At the end of the day, Ben goes to the sign-out register, which is right kind of in the front of the office in view of everyone. Um, He signs out, he turns around, and he wishes everyone a good weekend. Oh, he said, good luck on Sunday, Mark. He grinned and promptly left. And I spent the next couple of minutes answering questions from everybody else. about the sermon, because no one else had really seen me reading and no one else had been part of that conversation. So they all wished me luck. And I'm hoping and praying that it's not the last time I get to talk to them about it. Mm. Yeah, that wasn't, yeah, thank, thank you. Um, previously, I must admit, I would have wallowed in my disappointment over not stepping out in faith the first time, probably for days. I normally would have let it turn into discouragement and I would have convinced myself that I've screwed up beyond measure that that was the only chance the Lord would have given me to talk about spiritual matters with my workmates. Yeah, exactly. But the more I learn about the character of God, the more I realize that he just isn't like that. He's patient, kind, and uh, King James has got a great word, long-suffering. When he stood beside Jonah overlooking Nineveh, he had every right to be as angry and upset as Jonah was. After all, he sees every sinful action 
even down to our sinful thoughts. But when God looked out over the city of Nineveh, he had compassion on them. And that's that same God, that's our same God, that looked over Sodom and Gomorrah and discussed its fate with Abraham in Genesis 18. Abraham asked him multiple times, would you save the city, Lord, if there were 50 righteous people? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous within this city, then I'll spare all the place for their sake. So Abraham asked again, what about 45? Yes, 40, yes, 30, yes. All the way down to 10, still yes. Turns out there weren't even 10 righteous people in the city. But God graciously saves Lot and his family before their destruction. Something in me tells me that God would have done it for one. But Abraham stopped asking at 10. I read yesterday that when we're appealing to God's gracious nature, we can be very bold. And I believe we can ask for people and families and cities and even nations. In Luke 19, Jesus sees Jerusalem from far away and he weeps over it. Luke 19:42, he says, saying, If thou hadst known, even now, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. You see, Jesus was probably a big disappointment to most of Israel. They were expecting this David-like Messiah king, someone to crush the Romans, deliver the Israelites from their brutal reign. In John 6, they try and make Jesus king. But Jesus isn't having it. Jesus says to Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. And the Pharisees were probably disappointed in Jesus too. They probably wanted a Messiah that would have congratulated them on all their tithing and their long public prayers. But the thing is, Jesus saw their hearts, and he called them out on their hypocrisy, their greed, and their lack of mercy and faith. Their expectation made them blind to their own Messiah, right in front of their eyes. I fear that I've wasted many years acting out of dead, dry religion, just like theirs, rather than a heartfelt conviction to do as Jesus did, and to love as he loves. Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her hens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus weeps over lost opportunities. He weeps over the sinner rejecting his mercy. He weeps over the blessings that we miss out on because of our disobedience, of the blessings that we could pass on to others if only we stepped out in faith and put our faith into action. Because he, his grace abounds, he isn't willing that any should perish. He doesn't just save a person, like Ruth, for example, we spoke about last week. He saved that whole family. He restored that whole family. He gave them purpose, and they got to share in the bloodline of Jesus Christ himself. He would spare a whole wicked city for the sake of a few righteous believers, or just at the request of his humble servant. He is compassionate on those who are far away from them, who don't know him at all like the Assyrians in Nineveh, despite all their wickedness. He looks for those who are willing to bring the message, no matter how hard. So my question is, are you willing to be used to restore a family, or a city, or a nation? Would you be willing to witness to a group of pe people that maybe you don't fully understand, or maybe you can't stand? At the start of all this, we talked about a disappointment that we could truly rejoice in, and here it is. 1 Corinthians 2, 7 and 8. 
But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for if they had known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. So on three separate occasions, Jesus calls the devil or Satan the prince of this world. John 12, John 14, John 16. I think there's other places too. How Satan must have rejoiced when he saw our Lord whipped, spat on, and hung up there on that cross. He must have thought that he'd finally got one over on his old foe. But as we spoke about earlier, God already had a master plan in place. And oh, the disappointment for Satan. If he'd known that three days later, Jesus rose from the dead, not only coming back to life, but offering eternal life for all those who call on his name, realizing that it was their sin that put Jesus on the cross. Maybe you've been called a disappointment all your life. And maybe you look on yourself as a disappointment. Jesus said this about his ministry on earth. Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to, pre- to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Jesus was quoting and paraphrasing from Isaiah 61, which actually goes on to say, To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. So maybe today you need to exchange the ashes of your life, the grief, shame, disgrace, for the beauty of salvation. Or maybe exchange your mourning, your tears and your disappointments and your discouragement for the joy found in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if your heart is heavy this morning, it might be heavy with worry, maybe heavy with the cares of this world, exchange it for the garment of praise, that we all might be trees of righteousness, that the Lord may be glorified through us, that he may save families through us, cities through us, nations through us. Earlier this week, when I was pondering all this, on all this and thinking about the Lord looking over all those cities, I felt the Lord ask me a question. He said, do I look over Huntley? Yeah. I feel a little bit silly even doing this, I must admit, but I feel I should. So could everyone just close their eyes for a second? So imagine you're standing right on the northern end of the Hakamatas. You're right at the top of the Carry Loop lookout. Huntley's spread out before you. Power station on the left, winding river through the middle. Lake Hakanar peeking out on the right. And as you stand there looking taking it all in could you just ask the Lord Lord what do you see oh Lord that we would see those around us as you see them that we would step out in faith not because of guilt or shame or pride but because you're so faithful to us that we wouldn't be afraid to speak the words of your precious book the Bible for in it contain the words of life grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear Make us sensitive to the prompting and leading of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with your vision, all for your glory and for the expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the
Sydney Baptist Church podcast. We hope that it has been an encouragement to you. Please feel free to contact us at huntleybaptist at extra.co.nz or visit us at huntleybaptist.com.